I want to, maybe I should go to the, get away, I didn't, no, oh, they're coming to take me away, am I doing something wrong or, yeah, you think that will do it? Just keep that away as long as it's in rhythm, I don't really mind. I mean, if it's, uh, if it's got a beat to it. We're called. I want to back into my message this way. We're, 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 I didn't do it. We're called. If at any point you just want to give up, just let me know. To, as believers, as citizens of a heavenly kingdom, we're called to live a countercultural lifestyle. We're called to live a counter, have a countercultural value system and a countercultural mindset. Uh, as believers, as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're gathered here this morning and we understand that we're warriors stationed behind enemy lines who have a job to do. Um, and uh, um, our, the purpose of life, ultimately, is to tear down enemy walls, as we've been talking about the last several weeks, um, to further the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness, to lay the runway strip for our captain to come back and set up his kingdom down here. And all of that means that we're called to live a radically different kind of a life and to think radically different kinds of thoughts. We're not to be uh, going along with the, the common crowd. We're of a different kingdom, follow a different leader, march to a different drummer. Come forward, young man. If you want to... Is this better? Okay. Um, and... Um, it means bucking in the system. The intensity of a person's faith, I believe, can be measured by uh, the extent to which they're willing to buck the system. Paul said in Romans chapter 12 that we're not to be any longer conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. The pattern of the world is the culture you're a part of, the world that you're a part of. And the goal of the believer is to get our life, get our thinking, and get our heart in the position where we follow the, the, uh, the, the ways and the... The heart of our master and not the ways of the world. It means being countercultural. Now, nowhere is this more important and nowhere is this more difficult to do than when you're talking about something that is deeply embedded in the culture. You're raised with it. You breathe it. It's just part of the environment that, that you're used to. For example, down in Haiti... If you go down to Haiti, we have a number of people in this church who are involved in, uh, in various ways in missions work in Haiti. You go down there and you'll find that much of the church, in fact most of those who would call themselves Christians in Haiti, combine their Christianity with, with voodoo, various forms of voodoo. And we in the West look at that and we say, how can they possibly do that? That's wrong. Uh, voodoo is, is forbidden in the Bible and any kind of divination and and superstition is forbidden in the Bible, and here these people are involved in these, these pagan, ungodly forms of witchcraft, and they combine it with their Christianity. But see, we can see that because we're not part of their culture. That's not an issue for us. So we notice how different, how different Christianity is from voodoo. But in Haitian culture, uh, voodoo is part of their... That's just the way they've been doing things for thousands of years. They're used to that. Uh, that's just part of their cultural environment. And so when they become Christians, it's easy for them, for many of them at least, to just sort of absorb that part of their culture and fuse it with their Christianity and not even notice it. The same is true of us. I believe that we have got our own form of voodoo. In fact, I want to title this message Voodoo American Style. Voodoo American Style. 
What other cultures notice about us, but what we don't notice quite as readily, and this is what I want to be speaking on here this morning, is, is the fact that we tend to combine our cultural materialism with our Christianity. We tend to combine a cultural sanctioning of greed with our Christianity. And we're so used to it in this culture that we often don't even notice the extent to which we adapt that. Other people, like Christians in Haiti, notice it. They'll say, look at the way they combine voodoo and Christianity. But see, we're too close to it to often notice what is going on. It's crucial if we, in fact, are going to be marching to the beat of a different drummer, if we're going to be faithful citizens of the kingdom of heaven and not the citizens of the kingdom of this world, to notice this and to come against it. And so this is what I want to be speaking on now. Part of the reason why I want to talk on this issue right now is, is that uh, I haven't preached on this for about two and a half, three years. And it's an issue that we really need to hit squarely. Uh, especially here, we've been talking for the last several weeks about uh, who we are as a church body, what our values are, what our beliefs are, uh, what is it that God has called us to do. And now we're looking at purchasing a major property, so it makes sense for us to review what the Scripture says about finances. This week, I want to talk generally about uh, uh, matters of, of, of our culture. And next week, I'm going to lay out several uh, biblical principles that pertain to stewardship, financial stewardship. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 12. Luke 12 and 14, I think, are perhaps the most profound passages that deal with the radical call on, the, on, on our part to live counterculturally in terms of our finances. Would you be able to give me a little bit more in the monitor up here, if, if it's possible? Luke chapter 12, let's start with verse 13. <clears throat> what of the multitude said to him, said to Jesus, Teacher, bid my brother divide the inheritance with me. Uh, what's going on here is that you're probably dealing with a younger brother who's older brother. Back in those days, the older brother got everything. And so the younger brother's a little ticked off with his facts. So he comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, you know, will you put some leverage on my older brother to divide a part of the inheritance with me? I mean, this system here is not fair. Will you please confront that? Jesus is not willing to get involved in this particular dispute. Uh, he's not concerned with the economic particular issues of this world. What he wants to do is to offer a teaching that will reframe the whole question. So Jesus said this, Man, who made me a judge or divider over you? Do I look like an accountant to you, he's saying. But he said to them, I'll tell you this, take heed. Your, 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 your worry concerns me, Jesus is saying. Take heed and beware of all covetousness or greed. The word is greed. Pleonazzo, which means to crave increase. Beware of craving increase for yourself. Beware of all kinds of greed, he says. For a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. What we need to know, American Christians, is that every day we're bombarded with commercials and various kinds of advertisements whose main goal is to prove Jesus wrong on this very point. See, this is the voodoo that, that, that we're surrounded by. Oh, life does consist in the abundance of possessions. You need this. You've got to get this. You want this. Buy this. Crave this. Jesus says, know this. Beware of that kind of thinking. It's dangerous. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable saying, the land of a rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? 
for I have nowhere to store my crops. Oh, this poor man. This is the problem of evil, folks. He, he was so blessed. He had so many crops. It was so bountiful that uh, he didn't have a place to store. You know, it's kind of like when your closet just isn't big enough for all those shoes and your garage just isn't big enough for that fourth car. And, oh, you know, what is a person to do about this? This poor guy. What shall I do? My barns. I know what I'll do. So he said to himself, I'll do this. I'll store all my grain and all my goods and I will say to my soul, I'll tear down my old barns, I'll build bigger ones and I'll, I'll store all my grain there. And I'll say to my soul, So, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, be merry. We got ourselves a hot, hot retirement program here. But God said to him, Fool. Look at that. Fool. This night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Are you going to take one grain of wheat with you when you die? Are you going to take one inch of that nice great barn that you're planning on building? Are you going to take any of it with you? One splinter of it? Is any of it going to go with you? Have you stored up anything? You've really been concerned a lot for these next 30 years of your life. That's, you know, you've been really worried about that. What have you done for the, na- for the next three trillion years? Or three quadrillion years? Or for eternity? It is foolish to invest everything in 30 years when in fact it's three quadrillion years and more uh, that you have to be thinking about. Fool this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Uh, let me read down a little bit further. This whole, I, I want to read this whole chapter, but we don't have time. But this is a really powerful chapter. Do not, verse 29, he says, Do not see what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be of an anxious mind. Okay, don't quest after that. For all the nations of the world, and the word there can mean pagans, uh, this is what the pagans seek after. Uh, they seek these things, but your Heavenly Father knows that you need them. Instead, here's the countercultural thing here, folks. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things shall be added unto you. In the Matthew version, it says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give alms. Provide yourselves with purses that do not grow old, and with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. What he's saying here is this. Don't be like that fool who stored up everything here on earth. Give away what you've got and you're storing up stuff in heaven where you don't have to worry about moths and you don't have to worry about thieves and you don't have to worry about poor interest rates. Why? Verse 34. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then in down in verse 48, I'll just read this part. For for everyone to whom much is given, of him will much be required. And of him to whom men commit much, they will demand the more. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, uh, we love you. We worship you. We adore you, Lord. Uh, that was uh, proclaimed in, in our worship. And now, Lord God, we want to hear from you. And as a part of our worshiping you, Lord God, we want to bring our lives and our thinking and every part of our being into conformity with your will. Lord, use this message, use this time to confront something, Lord, that is uh, deeply entrenched in each one of us, Lord God. I pray you'd use the message to confront me and root out of my life 
assumptions and beliefs and presuppositions that are not consistent with Your will. And then, Lord, do it for all of us, Lord God. Let Your, let your Spirit move and use this Word to build the kingdom in our lives and in our minds. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. This is, I'm going to tell you, uh, my job is not to massage ears, not even my own. My job is to preach the Word, and it's not always uh, uh, massaging of the ears. Uh, what do you want? You want, want massaging? Uh, you want massage earring, ear, ear massages, or do you want the Word? What do you want? The Word. You want the Word. Of course you want the Word. What did this guy do wrong? This is the question I want to ask. What did this man do wrong here in Luke chapter 12? It wasn't the fact that he was rich. The, God doesn't get mad at the fact that his, uh, he had a bountiful harvest. In fact, God's the one who gave him the bountiful harvest. It wasn't the fact that this guy was wealthy that got God, that got, got God uh, mad. In fact, the Bible generally sees um, wealth and riches as a blessing from God. David, Solomon, Abraham, they're all very wealthy people. And God isn't mad at them for the fact that they're wealthy. In fact, their wealth is there as a result of God's blessing. In fact, if we have time, we'll get to a passage that will tell us that God wants to bless us. And in fact, if we're faithful in what we now have, God will make us faithful in more. He, it's His desire to bless His people. There's nothing wrong with that. The Bible never exalts poverty as a virtuous thing in and of itself. There are some people who do that. You think that you're somehow more righteous just by, by virtue of the fact that you don't have things. But the Bible never does that. It does, on occasion, praise people who choose to be poor when they could be, be, when they could be rich. For example, it says of, uh, of Jesus in, in, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that though He was rich, He made Himself to be poor. That's a virtuous thing. But it never praises poverty as such. And it never... Um, sees anything intrinsically wrong with being rich as such. The problem with this guy was not that he was wealthy. The problem with this man was what he did with his wealth. Or rather, what he didn't do with his wealth. His whole dialogue about this wealth that God had given him was to himself. It wasn't to God. He said to his soul, I know what I'll do. I'm going to just store it up. Build a bigger barn. Retirement with, uh, retire with ease. It'll be a a nice life I'm going to live here. And all of his thinking was about himself. He didn't consider the fact that it was all given to him by God. He didn't consider the fact that he didn't do anything in a previous lifetime to deserve to be born on a plot of land that brought forth a lot of, a lot of uh, grain rather than being born in some place that didn't have any grain. He didn't consider the fact that it was simply God's grace that he had a lot to eat, more than he needed, when there's people all over the world who don't have enough to eat. He didn't consider the fact that all that he had was the result of God's blessing and that he should have included God in on this discussion. He didn't consider the fact that he had some amount of responsibility for others in his area who had less than he had all of his thinking was about himself. It was self-centered. Ignore his God. It was the opposite of what Jesus said to do when he said, all the law is summarized in this. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, all your mind, all your body, all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if that verse means anything, it means that what we do with what we're blessed with should be about loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. This man didn't either. God had nothing to do with it, and neighbors had nothing to do with it. This is about himself. What I will do. This is what the Bible calls greed. Pleonazo. A desire to increase for yourself and yourself alone. That's, that's greed. And what we need to see is that the Bible comes down on it big time. 
a lot of the Old Testament and a lot of the New Testament is against the sin of greed. It is called several times in the Bible idolatry. It's a false god to be questing after things in this world, money in this world, comfort in this world for the purpose of yourself and not to submit it to the will of God. That is called greed. It's called idolatry. It is Paul listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, right up there with homosexuality, sodomy, adultery, and murder, and then there's greed. It, it makes God's top five big sin list. It's nasty. Jesus said you cannot serve both God and money. It's impossible. You can't serve two masters. It, it, it can't be done. If you're chasing after the holy dollar, you're not chasing after God. You're not seeking Him first. That's called greed. Paul warns in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that the love of money is the root of all evil. Hebrews 13 tells us to beware, be cautious about the love of money. There's something dangerous about it. You see, the flesh, the flesh, this, this kind of fallen influence that we still struggle with in our life, it loves comfort, it loves convenience, it loves it here, and it loves it now, and it loves it as much as it can possibly get it. And the danger, this is why Jesus warned so much about uh, the deceptiveness of riches and the dangers of riches. The danger is that when the flesh gets comfortable, it gets addicted to that comfort and it forgets what life's all about. It forgets about God, it forgets about others, it forgets the purpose for which God put us here. And there's a part of us, this, this flesh, that just wants to indulge itself. This is, this is like a person who was on Normandy Beach and there was a D-Day is going on and the battle's going on and this... There's a part of, of us that would just like to build a mansion right there on, 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 on Normandy Beach and, and uh, live in comfort and make it soundproof so we don't have to hear the bullets and make it bulletproof so nothing ever gets to us and turn up our stereos really loud and let's pretend like there is no war. Let's pretend like we have no responsibility. Let's just eat. Let's just drink. Let's just be merry. Let's just worry about ourselves for the next day and in our retirement. And it's blackout reality. Riches can do that to us. Greed can do that to us. There's like a magnetic quality to money. And there's a magnetic quality to things, to possessions, which just drag us down and forget about God, forget about the world, forget about reality, and think only of ourselves. We like it. It's here. It's now. It's comfortable. So the Bible comes down big on it. doesn't ever say that it's wrong to be rich. But you have to understand that there's a unique danger that comes along with that blessing. It can cause you to forget what life's about. You get your mansion now... You don't long for it so much later on. And we get focused on the here and the now. My conviction is that this is the voodoo of our culture. Um, that as a matter of fact, um, greed permeates our culture far more thoroughly than most of us, including myself, realize. But our job as kingdom people is to wake up to that reality and not to be deceived by it. Um, consider this. And I don't want anyone thinking that I'm a communist or a socialist or any, a fascist or anything when I say this, but capitalism runs on greed. Capitalism runs on greed. Now, in a fallen world, it's the best thing going. It makes money. It works. It works way better than any other uh, economic program you could uh, imagine. But why does it work so well? It's because we're in a fallen world. And what, it, what, what, what keeps this thing going is that the flesh always wants, if we indulge it, if we let it, the flesh always wants more and more and more and more. And that's what keeps this system going. Luther saw this. The great reformer Luther saw this. Uh, that's why he was against capitalism. 
it runs by keeping people perpetually hungry, perpetually thirsty, perpetually desiring more. If people in this country, for one day, got totally content with what they had, they, they just quit buying, they just quit wanting more, they just said, you know what, I've got enough, I think I'm just going to let it go, this whole system would collapse like that. The cash flow would just dry up, it would be an absolute disaster. It, it runs on keeping, on, on, on uh, uh, this pleonazzo, always desiring more, always desiring more. And we've just got to be aware of this. Consider this. In the average lifetime of, a, uh, of an American, you will have watched, by the time you're 70 years old, a year and a half worth of commercials. Doesn't that make you sick? A year and a half of your life, if you're an average American, will have been spent watching nothing but commercials. And every one of those commercials is designed to convince you, not everyone, but almost all of them, to convince you that Jesus was wrong when he said that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Every one of them is designed to create a desire in you. There's an advertising uh, agency that, that put in this ad in the New York Times several years ago that said this, Now, as always, the key to economic growth in your company is, lies in the ability of your salespeople to create desire in the hearts of your potential customers. How am I going to sell you things? Well, I've got to make you, and I'm not coming down on salespeople here, nor am I coming down on advertisers here, nor am I coming down on TV producers here, okay? We're all in the fall world. we all got to make a living. There, I've given my little caveat, so don't get mad at me. But I'm looking at the system here as a whole. To sell something, you've got to convince the person that they need this. They've got to have this. If you want respect, you've got to drive this kind of a car. You know? And if, if you really want to live in style, you've got to buy this kind of house. And if you're really going to be you know, good-looking, you've got you to wear this kind of outfit. And if you're really going to be sexy, you've got to wear this kind of perfume or, here's the funny one, drink this kind of beer. Um, you know, and, and, and we're bombarded with that over and over again. Advertising is a $384 billion a year industry, and it goes up about a third every year. You could feed the world three times over with the amount that we spend on advertising. Think about that. All of it geared to just go into us and say, you know what, you need more. You've got to have more. Creating a, uh, a society of people who are perpetually hungry for more, insatiably. It goes back to the Garden of Eden. This is why Paul says it's the root of all evil, the love of money. It's the root of all evil. Go back to the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3. What did the serpent do? This is the first advertisement. That's what it is. It's the first TV commercial. Hey, Eve, over here. Check out the tree. You know, you've been walking along here. Aren't you getting kind of bored with the way things are? Have you ever thought about what you could be, uh, you know, if you actualize your full potential? And Eve says, well, I thought I was actualizing my full potential. This is the Boyd paraphrase. Um, and uh, the, the serpent just basically says, no, you're not okay with where you're at. Are you kidding me? You, man, you could be doing way better than what you're doing right now. Check out this tree. It can make you wise. It can make, give you the knowledge of, of, of good and evil. This is what you need. Reach out and get it. Grab it. Oh, it will just make you the full woman that you were meant to be. Uh, go for it right now. It's on sale and you can charge it. No, char no pay till next year. There it is. You see, a desire was created in Eve that wasn't there before. A desire. That's what runs this entire system. We've got to be, uh, we, we've got to be aware of it. The lie is this. The lie is that the tree is going to give you something that you don't already have. The lie is that the abundance of life consists in getting this, that, or the other thing. The lie is that you need stuff, and if you only get a little bit more, then you're going to be satisfied, then you're going to be filled. It's a lie. The quest after these things is the very thing that keeps us perpetually hungry. And it's addicting. Because you buy into the lie. You think that if only I had a little bit more, if I only had a little bit bigger. And we end up spending all of our resources on ourselves like the rich fool 
never being full, but thinking that if we just got a little bit more, then we'd be full. It's the voodoo of our culture. Consider this as proof of it, that it being the voodoo of our culture, that the more you get, the more you actually think you need, the more you keep. In 1960, the average American lived three times better than the uh, uh, average person on the planet Earth. Three times the global average. And we lived 40 times better off than the pro poorest 20% of people on the planet. 40 times better. That year, in 1960, we gave away 2.5% of our gross national product to aid those poorest 20% of people, uh, those countries that, were, that constituted the poorest 20%. In 1994, we now were up to living four times the global average, okay, and we were 160 times better off than the poorest 20% of people on the planet Earth. All right, so we have quadrupled the distance between us and the poorest, and we've gone up uh, you know, 25% in terms of the global average, but we gave away less than 1% of our gross national product to helping those countries. In fact, we gave away less than half of 1% to helping those uh, the poorest 20%. In fact, we gave away less than a quarter of 1% to aiding those countries. The more we get as a nation, and I think this says something about the, the, the lie that we're caught in, the less we're prone to give, the less percentage uh, we give to others. In fact, America ranks absolute last in, 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 among industrialized countries in terms of what we give away. We're also, we also rank last individually in terms of what we give to charities, in terms of what we give to churches. The average American gives 1.5% of their income to uh, charities and churches. That means we keep 98.5% of all that we have, even though we're four times better off than the average person on the planet, 160 times better off than the poorest 20%, we, get, we keep 98.5% of it to ourselves, for ourselves. It's the deceptiveness of riches. The more you get, the more you think you need. A poll was done several years ago uh, of people who made between $45,000 and $55,000 a year. This is 1994. And almost half of them, about 43%, I think it was, said that they considered themselves to be on the verge of poverty. Just barely making it. It's just barely squeaking by. You see, because part of how this whole system runs, and I'm just saying, you know, we've got to be aware of the system we're a part of. It runs by keeping people focused on what they don't have rather than on what they do have. You see? So you measure your status by the, you know, the average American is in the top 95% of people on the planet in terms of our wealth. But what we notice is the 4% who's above us, not the 94% who's below us. So we feel like, oh, we're not really making it. We're, we're just barely getting by. There's a congressman last year who on National Public Radio defended giving himself a $50,000 a year raise because he said that, put it, that the $164,000 a year that he was making put him in the lower middle class. Think about it. Yeah, um, you know, but it's all a matter of how you assess what is the middle class. And if, you, if he's looking at the 3% of people who make more than him, well, then he feels like he's, you know, just really, really barely getting by. What we need to be aware of, believer, is this. There is a pull to the riches of this world. Jesus warned, Paul warned, the Bible warns against the dangers of riches. They tend to suck you up. They tend to consume you. They tend to make you self-centered. They tend to make you forget about eternity. They tend to make you forget about what the real purpose of life is. And if you're not guarding against it, that is what they will do. And if ever there were a people in history that are rich... If Jesus had any, whatever criteria he had in his mind, whatever criteria Paul had in his mind when he warned against riches, we qualify for it. 
Some of us in this room are wealthier than others, but all of us by historical standards have an awful lot. Most of us have stuff that Herod, King Herod in the first century, never dreamed of. We've got to take these warnings of Scripture very seriously. We've got to see how radically different the voodoo of our culture is from uh, the teachings of the Bible. Precisely because we're so enmeshed in the voodoo, it's easy for us to notice it. The Bible tells us that we're to be content with whatever we've got. It's the teaching of the Bible over and over again. Paul says he's facing, he's facing uh, death, he's in prison, and uh, he says, I've learned in every situation I'm in to be content with that, to be content with that. Be content in every situation that you're in, but we need to see that we are uh, part of the air we breathe, part of the, the, the environment of the culture in which we live would tell us to never be content whatever our situation is. There's always more you could get, and that's what you need to be seeking after. The Bible tells us to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Our culture basically says seek first the here and the now, the bigger barn and more wheat and, and the comfort and the security that the wealth and the riches of this world can give you. Seek that first. Let God take care of Himself. The Bible tells us over and over again to lay up treasures in heaven. Lay up treasures in heaven by how you live, by how you give. Our culture says the opposite. Lay up treasures here and now. Heaven will take care of itself. Now is what's important. Grab all the gusto you can get right here and right now. The Bible tells us not to worry about what we're to eat, what we're to drink, what we're to wear, where we're to live. It says don't pagans chase after that and you expect that because they don't have a regenerate spirit on the inside. The Bible says don't chase after those things, but we live in a culture that says think about little else. Chase after those things. Worry about those things. That is why most of us have a default button in terms of what we think about. Our default is not towards heavenly things. We default to earthly things. The here, the now, what are we going to get, what are we going to wear, how are we going to do it, yada, 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 yada. We're conditioned by our culture to think that way. And that just tells us that we need to be aware of that and resist it and fight it because we want to be marching to a, to a different drummer. The Bible tells us, Jesus tells us in, in Luke chapter 14, verse 33, that a disciple is to have no possessions. Think about that. Now, what does that mean? I'll, I'll talk about that later. I don't want to get off track. I'm in a rhythm right now. Uh, what does that mean? We live in a culture that says that it's all about possessions. Jesus says the abundance of your life doesn't consist in what you possess. Every commercial we see on TV is about the abundance of life consists right in this. You need this kind of car. You need this kind of clothes. You need a bigger boat. You need a better cabin. You need yada, yada, yada. That's what life's all about. And you're missing out on something if you don't get this. Desire it. Hunger for it. The Bible says that this man, this rich farmer, was a fool. But our culture would say, if we can just read it honestly, pretend like you didn't read this in the Bible, pretend like you read about this guy in a money magazine. Our culture would say this guy was a success. He wasn't a fool. He's just your average Joe on Wall Street who made it big, got the gold, and so of course he had tears down his old house and puts up a bigger house and tears down the one vacation home, puts up another vacation home and stores up for himself a humongous secure retirement program. What is wrong with that? He's just a good capitalist. See, the Bible says he's a fool. He's a fool. The Bible, uh, the Bible uh, has a very different understanding of things than what our culture would give us. And I believe that we in the church... Let the Word of God land as it's supposed to land here. Don't resist it. Um, uh, we, we tend to think these things... Uh, this is fairly normal to us. This is fairly normal to us. Think about this. There's a show on TV called Greed. Have you seen it? Uh, it's a rip-off of You Want to Be a Millionaire. Um, and uh, it's called Greed. Now, we probably think, well, that's kind of a yicky term. But, see, 
the Bible is greed right alongside of sodomy, homosexuality, promiscu- or, uh, uh, um, adultery, and murder. What would you think of a game show that was called Adultery? Or how about sodomy? Hey, primetime folks, sodomy! You would have a lot of Christians who would go, uh, see, even mentioning it here, probably a lot of you are like, oh, don't even say that from the pulpit. How about this? Greed! See, it didn't have the same effect, did it? And that's why I bet there's no letters written about the word greed or calling a game show greed, but there would be if, we, if it was titled those other things. Why? Because I believe that we tend to default, it's such a part of our culture, that it's, just, it's wrong, but not that wrong, and, and it's, you know, uh, it just doesn't strike us as that big. We watch a lot of shows and we get offended by the language, perhaps. We get a lot offended by the sex in it. We get offended by the violence in it. And that's fine. But most American Christians don't get offended when they see a show, as most shows do, uh, that promote as a laudable, praiseworthy thing a greedy lifestyle. Some self-indulgent person who's throwing opulent parties, living an opulent lifestyle who doesn't give a rip about the 40,000 kids that are going to starve to death today. And I submit to you that that is at least as great an offense in God's eyes as the other sins that are listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. But it's not to us. Why? Because it's part of the air that we breathe. It's part of the voodoo of our culture. Believers, we need to become aware of that. Evangelical Christians, those who would say that they are evangelical Christians, we tend to give more than the, the, the culture gives. Uh, the culture gives an average of about 1.5%. The average evangelical Christian gives about 2.5% of their income, some as much as 3%. I mean, some give way more than that, but on, on the average, they give between 25 to 3% of their income to charities and to churches and whatnot. And that's better than the culture. But then again, it means we're still keeping 97% of, of what we take to ourselves. And we need to ask, God, is that really the way that it is supposed to be? I believe that the devil is, has a concerted effort. Hear me now. The devil works in a lot of ways. Paul says, don't be ignorant of his schemes. I believe, and I've preached this three years ago, that um, uh, the devil, one of the devil's chief agendas is to keep us as, as much inebriated by the cultural materialism as possible. And the reason is because money and, resor- money and, and possessions are resources. The New Testament treats them that way. They're resources for ministry. Uh, and if we ever got radical about that, uh, the devil knows what we could do. We are the wealthiest group of Christians ever in the history of the world. Think about that. Which means we have more potential in terms of what we, how we can use our resources, more potential than any group of Christians ever in the history of the world. And the devil knows that. So if the devil can just keep us thinking that greed and materialism and self-centered narcissistic spending of stuff is normal, that that's just expected, well then he has us sitting on the resources and using them on ourselves rather than furthering the kingdom of God. And so we need to, in Jesus' name, come against that stronghold. In fact, I want to end this message by doing just that. That stronghold to the extent that it's made inroads in us individually, in me individually, and in us as a culture. There's a lie that goes on that we buy. It keeps us thinking that if only we made a little bit more, then, then, then we'd have uh, enough to give, when in fact, we're already as, as rich as it comes by historical standards. Let me conclude by laying out three quick principles. Biblical teachings to confront this voodoo in our life. Number one, and I've already said it, beware. Just be, be aware. Just begin by being aware of the dangers of, of riches, of the deceptiveness of riches. 
When I was making $15,000 a year, I had a friend who was making $30,000 a year who complained about his finances and I judged him in my mind because I thought, how can you possibly... You make twice what I make, we have the same size family and, and you say you have money problems. And then came a day when I got a job and I started making $30,000 a year. You know what? I had money problems. Uh, and I thought, boy, if I could just make $50,000 a year, well, then I will have arrived and then I'll have some excess. You know what? Finally got a job where I was making $50,000 a year and you still have money problems. You have more to show for it. You have a better couch. You have, maybe have a better car. You, you know, you, you can actually pay your phone bills. You've got more to, to show for it. But you still have got problems. And then the people who make 50 think, well, if only I made 100. And the people who make 100 will think, only, if only I made 200. And the people who make 200 think, well, if only it was a half a million, on and on and on. But the deception is that. There's always that if only, if only I cross the, turn the corner and get a little bit more, then I'll, then I'll have arrived and then I'll be content and then I'll be okay. But see, the very thing that you're eating is making you more and more hungry. It's the deceptiveness of riches. Be aware of the deceptiveness of riches. How sucked in are you? That's the question we've got to be asking ourselves. Hear what the Lord says about the dangers of that. Hear what the Lord says when He says that we are. It all comes down to this. Bottom line. Here it is. Got it? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. That's, seek first the kingdom of God. Don't let anything distract you or deter you. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. God calls us kingdom people, us warriors stationed behind enemy lines. He gives us a vocation. And all that we are, our time, our talent, our resources, and our money is to be used, to be dedicated to Him, to use it however He wants to further that, that cause. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And let that be reflected in how you live. Billy Graham said you can always tell uh, what a person thinks about God by what they do with their, their money. Let, let God be first in your finances, like God should be first in your home, like God should be first in your priorities, like God should be first in your values, and so on and so on. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Don't be questing after the things that the world quests after. Jesus says, that, you know, they're going to do that, but you're called to, to follow a different, uh, uh, different beat. You're citizens of a different kingdom. Of course, they quest after the more and the more and the more because they don't have a divine life. They don't have a regenerate spirit. That's the only life they know. But you are born again. You've been regenerate. You've been called. And so live according to different values. Hear the Word of God when He says that. We understand. We need to remember what the score is, what's going on in this world, what the truth is that's going on. There's a war. There really is a war. There really is a war going on. And when God saves us, He doesn't just save us for our sake, though He does that, but He saves us for a vocation. And the vocation is to reach the lost and to spread the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness wherever, wherever we can do it and by however we can do it. Keep that in mind. Don't be like the rich young ruler who forgets about eternity. We understand that this life is a probational, a probational temporary stepping stone stage onto eternity. Be laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven. That's wise. That pays dividends throughout eternity. All that you invest in in the here and now is going to be gone in 50 years or 100 years at the most, and you don't take a dime of it with you. Be wise in the things of God. Don't be deceived by the magnetic pull and the quality of riches. Secondly, remember, we need to remember, if ever there was a group of people in history who need to remember, that to whom much is given, much is required. To whom much is given, much is required. The purpose of life is to further the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness. Uh, God has blessed us with tremendous resources to do that. We need to be about that. We need to understand that there's a responsibility. I, the, 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 the things that I earn, the things that I have, uh, give me the potential to do, a lot more in, in, uh, to do a lot more in different ways for the kingdom of God than people who have nothing. But with that is a blessing for me, but also a responsibility with me. 
Every blessing comes with a responsibility. We have to understand that there's a responsibility in that. The third and final point is this. In fact, I want to read from, from Scripture. It comes out of 2 Corinthians, and I'll be talking a little bit more about this next week. It's one of the biblical principles. But here's a law that God set up. A law that He set it up to encourage us to keep us free from the addiction of riches. Because it's not good for us to have that, and He loves us too much to let us wallow in that. But here's the principle. Um, in order to keep us free from that and growing in kingdom work, he says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. The point is this. Paul's in the process of taking up an offering. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. It's the word of God. Each one must do as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion. This is why it is absolutely ungodly and really impossible for me to judge you or for you to judge me or for me to coerce you. It's possible for me to do that, but it would be ungodly to coerce you or you to coerce me to give. Every person has to answer to God on their own. So you make up your mind and you do it not under compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver. And the word there literally means hilarious. We'll talk about that next week. And listen to this. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance. God wants to bless us in abundance. He doesn't take joy in poverty. He wants to bless us in in abundance. There's nothing wrong with that. But now know why He wants to bless us in abundance. There's two reasons. So that, one, you may always have enough of everything. Okay, that's about you. Good for you. God's blessed you. You have enough of everything. Uh, You're privileged. God's blessed you. Good. But also, that you may provide in abundance for every good work. There's a dual focus here. God wants to bless you, and then He wants you to learn how to bless others. You to get involved in every good work. There's that dual focus there. And what the Scripture's telling us here, and it's a promise and it's a challenge, the question is, do we have faith to believe it? Is that if, God, if we're faithful in little, God will make us faithful over much. If we, re, if we sow sparingly, we reap sparingly. But if we sow bountifully, we reap bountifully. Even in the here and now. God wants His children to learn the power of blessing. That it is more, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. So the more you can do more, which means He's going to give you more, which means you can do more, which means He's going to give you more, which means you can do It's a really cool cycle that you're on here, folks. It's the biblical principle. You know, God, it, this isn't about... God calling us to some austere lifestyle where there's no, there's no superfluous spending, uh, where there's no recreation, whatever. God created the world to be enjoyed. He, that's why he, he, in His original design, it was supposed to be enjoyed. Jesus changed water into wine, for goodness sakes. That was a superfluous mi- uh, miracle. Uh, there's, that's not what this is about. What it is about is this. We are to recognize that all that we have, all that we shall ever have, comes from God and exists for God. Having it is not an issue. That's not an issue. You can be a a multi-multi-billionaire, and there's nothing wrong with that. The question...